You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie Leonard. And this is Aaliyah Gaskins. And we are super excited to have our guest, Ariel Guerrero, with us today. Ariel is the founder and principal of Ariel E. Guerrero, LLC, and the co-founder of the ONG Racial Equity Collaborative. You'll be able to access his full bio on our website at checkboxoutreach.com. In the meantime, what you need to know is that Ariel's work focuses on helping local leaders and organizations implement a racial equity lens. He's seen a ton of communities get it right, but he's also seen a bunch of communities get it wrong. And so today, Katie and I are excited to pick his brain on like what it will it actually take to disrupt how organizations do community engagement and to actually push an intentional focus on equity when we're talking about the issues that affect uh, the communities that we care about most. So Ariel, welcome to the show. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for having me. So excited to have you on, Ariel, and thank you for the time. Um, So I guess let's just jump right into it. If you could just get right into telling us, I guess, your company, how you launched it, and the importance of really addressing how organizations can transform their policies, practices, and procedures to really create more equitable outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So thank you again for having me on. Really appreciate it. Um, So it's funny, you know, getting into this work, I actually didn't start my my career uh, thinking I was going to be a kind of racial justice warrior, right? Um, Started my career in mental health, um, thinking I was going to be a psychiatrist until I I took organic chemistry. Um, Oh, I was in that route too. I failed it. (laughs) Did you pass me? Changes the pathway really quickly if it ain't for you. And, you know, so I, my career has really been centered, though, um, in community work. And as I kind of went through my career, it's I realized later on recently that all of these things were connected to racial justice. Um, and it wasn't something that's what I called it early on in my career. Um, and so the last few years, I've been centered on how do we actually dismantle structural and institutional racism um, through policy, practice and procedure, really thinking through. Um, and recognizing that our history of our country, these policies, um, these practices, these procedures were never built or meant to serve communities of color. Um, and so with that level of intentionality, we've got to think about how we are then intentionally putting policies, practices, procedures, what we call the three P's, um, into place that organizations can start to fundamentally shift outcomes, um, particularly for those most marginalized. Um, so we started our firm, uh, literally, we actually just had our, our one year birthday. Um, oh, in March. Um, Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so we started a year ago, really the work that we were doing before uh, my partner is Bernadette Onyanaka and Kimberly Archie. Um, we started this work a year ago with the idea that um, we were all doing a lot of the 50,000 foot view work, best practices, methodology, which is really important work. But we recognize that folks are really struggling with the implementation, with the practice of racial equity. And so we started our firm with the idea that we were going to focus on the implementation work. We're gonna do deeper dive work um, with our clients to really understand how we can start to see this implemented on the ground level because quite frankly, we haven't done this as a country, right? This is really new work. We have thought about policies. The civil rights movement has been going on for decades, but as we think about policy shifts, 
that's not something that we can necessarily, we have a long playbook to pull from. And so a lot of this is that we've got to kind of come up with this stuff um, right in real time and continue to grow and develop as a field. And so as we think about um, how organizations can really codify this within their organizations from a policy, practice, and procedural standpoint, one of the things that we stress is um, you, you don't have to have right all these like fancy tools. You've actually got a lot of the tools in your toolbox ready. It's just a matter of shifting your lens, right? And so that's what we call um, you know, being able to apply a racial equity lens to the work that you're doing, particularly decision-making. Uh, and so for us, there's a lot of kind of questions that we want to ask ourselves. Uh, and Katie, you may have asked some of yourselves this, right? And think about some of the work, right, that you've done in jurisdiction work. And so like, what are the racial impacts of potential decisions, right? As we think about policy, practice, and procedure, um, who's experiencing burden? Who's experiencing benefit? What are some of the root causes of these disparities? Um, what are the unintended outcomes? And then we're big on data. Um, you know, I think this is one of those spaces where we push our organizations uh, that we work with, whether they be government, nonprofit, or private sector. Let's we need to look at the the disaggregated data, right? By race, ethnicity, gender. And geography, if that's if that's applicable, and really start to think about how that data is informing what the outcomes are in those communities, and then using that data to then connect back to the policies, the practices, or the procedures. And that doesn't always mean that it has to be in writing, right? It could be practices which we know are not things that are necessarily codified in pen and paper, but just how the organization has been doing things for God knows how long. Um, and so intentionally disrupting that to say, okay, how do we start to shift and transform it so that we can fundamentally see different outcomes? I love it. Yeah, that's really, that's really deep. I, I have a question for you. I guess I'm curious. One of the things that struck me about what you just said is that it's not just about kind of doing the work in the same way that we've been doing it, but it's about dismantling a system. Yeah. I think there are a lot of organizations out there that think, well, we do equity work. We have equity in our mission statement. We have an equity framework. We have an equity committee. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what are some of the biggest assumptions organizations or leaders make about what it actually takes to do racial equity work intentionally and in a way that will dismantle systems? You know, this is a loaded question. Um, and <laughs> Sorry. So I, no, no, this is, it's, a great, it's a great question. I think I'll, my mind goes to a lot of different places, right, when you ask that question. I think some of the assumption is, right, that we are doing the work in a system that actually allows for the work to take hold. And I think that's one of my biggest pieces that as we do this work, we tell people, and I sound like a broken record a lot of times when we talk about intentionality, this system that we currently have was designed not to work for people of color, right? Indigenous native people, um, right? Other marginalized groups. And so recognizing that, and you know, this may be somewhat of a, I know this the, the crowd listening to this is going to right, probably not be so shocked and awed, but we talk about white supremacy as a system. We talk about all the power structures that we possibly see, right, in our country, and that we think that those power structures are able to actually shift in a way that can work for more equitable outcomes. I would argue that that actually is probably not true, that we need to fundamentally look at like full transformation of our systems, right, and our institutions. And I think about particularly the power structures. Um, a lot of social justice organizations and organizations that mean, right, have the greatest of intentions still have very white supremacist leadership structures. And if you think about that, 
right? How those organizations operate from a top-down approach, right? That, you know, we haven't democratized leadership and, and decision-making, um, right? To your point, or to some of the point around community engagement, we're not including or engaging the people that are most affected or our constituents, right? In the decision-making or the strategic process, um, that's missing from a lot of places. And so I think this assumption that we have the answers as organizations, um, I think oftentimes is wrong because we are working in silos and too, too often we are way too close to the problem. And we think, you know, we have these grandiose ideas, um, right? We've got our MPAs and PhDs and we think we can, but again, we're not necessarily attached or in um, the actual lives of those most affected. And so how are we raising that up in the conversation, I think is really, really important and understanding as a leader in an organization or in work, I'm not a big cake and I still have a lot to learn, right? And so when I walk in, I walk in with, yes, the knowledge that I bring and the experience and I can share that, but I also need to be able to receive other information, right? Knowledge, experience, to be able to inform how we then move into decision-making and how that can be shared decision-making. So Ariel, I have a question. How, and coming from the you know race equity background, I know as soon as you start talking about race, People shut down. White people oh, shut yeah. down. Black people. Everybody shuts down, and then there becomes this whole divide and conquer type mentality. So, if you were talking to somebody right now who, you know, is just an employee and they they have a lot of value and insight to offer to their company or their institution yep. or their organization, how can they start having the conversation without people shutting down on them? Yeah. So there are a few things that come to mind. Um, oftentimes, I think. Being very, um, this is my New Yorker in me, and I may not recognize that this might not be everybody's cup of tea, um, but, but being very honest and kind of transparent and blunt upfront, right? That um, it's uncomfortable and it's going to be uncomfortable. And and I also joke sometimes with my clients, you're actually paying me to make you feel uncomfortable, right? Um, but it's like you pay a trainer. You don't pay a trainer to make you kind of feel good right. in the moment, right? Yeah. You pay a trainer to help you work and grow. And so I think we have to look at it very much the same way that folks that are charged internally in organizations, or if you bring in someone externally, that you are charging that person and or group to help you grow, build a muscle. And that's part of also a, a tactic of white supremacy as a system is that we don't talk about it. Let's not talk about it. Let's be quote unquote colorblind, right? Let's not address it. But we live in a racialized society. And so we need to talk about it because if we don't acknowledge it, then we're actually not acknowledging the person in front of us, right? And, and, and their experience and all the outcomes that are connected to it. Um, I also oftentimes in training and work that I do often use and say, um, right, when all else equal, this is a data piece, when all else equal, race is still the number one predictor for one success. And there is a slew of data, right, that we can point to and look at that point to that. COVID is a perfect example that we're like living through right now, right? I mean, we could talk about homelessness, we could talk about housing, um, right? Economic indicators. Again, when all else equal, race is still the number one predictor. And it's, it's a point for point system. I mean, when you look yeah. at, you know, if somebody the same exact educational attainment, same exact income, if there's a woman of color and a white woman, the white woman will live longer with all the same underlying, with all the same factors. But what I really like, NPR just did a study not too long ago about, you know, the racism and the implicit bias and the microaggressions that we experience as black and brown people that aid in all of that. And so, yeah, I'm really glad that you said that. 
Yeah, I think what's what's really interesting about what you just said just there too, right? Is and I, I actually often use this, find myself using this example. Folks are want to talk about, oh, well, why not? Why are we not focusing on like gender equity? I'm like, we are, but you can't focus on gender equity without leading with race, because to your point, then we're actually just talking about white women doing better, right? Because black and brown women will continuously fall on the bottom, right, of that that spectrum all the time. And so you've got to be very explicit that we have to talk about this because again, the way our system was built, um, it was not built to serve black and brown people. Um, it was not built to serve marginalized communities. And so we just have to be able to call that out. And I, and I think being very, I'm really big on just being explicit and kind of transparent. It's going to hurt feelings. It is going to make you feel uncomfortable, but that's part of the process in growth, right? Growth does not happen without some growing pains. And so we just have to be able to really kind of just lean into that. Right. I think you brought up a good point, too. With COVID, I think we're seeing more and more people calling it out. There's headline after headline after headline about how black and brown communities are disproportionately affected. And so I guess my question for you would be, after we call it out, like, what is it going to take to actually get folks to do something different? I feel like we're at this moment where we like we either grow and do something different or we're back to the same old, same old again. And we're going to be having this conversation, you know, a week from now, a month from now and 10 years from now. And so I guess, you know, what are your like big ideas for what we need to be doing right now in our organizations and our communities to flip the system? Mm -hmm. So I fully believe that we do, right? We're in a space where we have an option. We have an opportunity and a window to transform how we operate. And I don't think we're going to come back um, from COVID the same way, right? I, we just fundamentally can't go back to normal. Um, I think normal has forever been altered for altered for us. Um, you think about that even, one more time for the people in the back. Oh, so I think you know we're not going to come out of this thing, right? We're not. We're just not going to come out of this the same way. Um, but that's part of the, the problem. New normal is that people aren't having that exact conversation, like yeah. trying to go back to this previous, you know what I mean, like version of what yeah. our normal was. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about even like the typical nine to five day, right? For many job positions, um, I've always believed that we could shift what the typical workday looks like, right, for our communities. And this has forced us to think about that. What job positions and, right, and responsibilities that people had that folks said you could not do remotely, we're doing remotely. And so how do you possibly go back to that? People have been like, well, wait, you told me. I couldn't do my job this way. I clearly did it for the last three months, right? It's been working. We've been good. How do we go back to you going back to the office nine to five? That's not going to happen. Um, and I think we need to have this level of intentionality. Uh, so for all the planners out there and like the urban planners, right? We None of our communities were built by happenstance. I mean, we're talking five, 10, 15, 20 years of planning goes into building a neighborhood. And I think that same level of intentionality needs to be brought to policy, practice, and procedure now, regardless of what industry or space you are in. The planning and the decisions that we make now as a country, right, as like humanity, will fundamentally decide what the next 50 years looks like because we're making fundamental changes to how we operate because COVID has said we need to do that. Right. Um, it has literally disrupted everything. But I think what you're also seeing with COVID um, 
right? It's an exacerbating factor. And so what's happening is like many other crises, right? Tornadoes, hurricanes, right? Earthquakes, wildfires, anything. Those crises moments literally take off, right? Kind of all the fat, right? And covering off the top. And they show you the bare bones of what structural and institutional racism looks like. This is why we see the disparate outcomes that we do is because the systems and the institutions were not designed to serve and or hold up those communities right at the at, at its very worst. Um, so if you think about even in its good times, they're not holding them up. But if you strip that right kind of that safety net or that comfortability level for everybody, then you're really seeing how it actually works for white people and how it doesn't work for people of color. And so I think we just got to be really intentional about the decisions that we're making now. And to the, some of the questions that I asked earlier, like there are just certain questions that we can, even in the same decision process that we're taking now, we can literally add two minutes to that conversation and say, you know, who is being burdened and who is benefiting? And if we look at the data that is disaggregated by race, ethnicity, gender, and geography, again, where applicable, then we're going to see who is impacted. Who is being burdened by said decision? I mean, we look at the, you know, the the CARES Act and how we look at PPP loans. Much of that money n did not go to um, of color businesses, right? They Small businesses across. They said three percent of the amount. loans went to minority business enterprises. It's insane, yeah. right? And, but there's no surprise, right? Because they're not connected to banks and financial institutions the same way. They're not making as much as other larger corporations, right? And so um, I can't remember who wrote this article, but thinking about like folks that have, you know, really nice bank accounts and relationship with Chase and Citi and some of these other larger banks, they've got direct connections, right, to the folks who are literally writing the applications for them. Yep. And so and they're positioned, right, to take... Like you said, the structures and the systems, it's fundamental relationship building that many minority communities don't have. If you don't have a bank in your community, how do you know how to have a banking relationship with a banker? Yep. Yep. And there so have been. Question. Yeah, good. That, yeah. No, I'm just struck by you talked about we've got to get these organizations, whether it's uh, some of the banks you mentioned or some of the policymakers, thinking about these questions about whose burden. I guess I'm curious if you were in front of any of them right now. Like, what's a new question you're asking or what's like, what's what would you push them on to get them to start thinking about this is the type of conversation you need to be having or else all of your resources are going to miss, miss the mark? Yeah. And we're going to keep having the same issues, right? We're going to try to keep pouring money at something and it's just going to keep burning because we actually haven't cut off the source. Right. And so I think that's always it's like you're putting a Band-Aid on a pipe and instead of cutting the water off and swapping out the whole pipe. Like we're, we haven't turned the water off. Um, I'd ask them. I'd ask them. I say, hey, have you looked at your? Do you? Oh, first of all, do you have disaggregated race right data by race and ethnicity? And if you don't, right, or if you do, have you looked at it in relation to the decision making that you're making? Because I would say most times you probably have not. Um, we have not had an intentionality of being able to look at race and ethnicity at the forefront when it comes to decision making. Right. We have danced around it. We say it's either low income. Um, I know folks who have done work in opportunity zones. Right. And like they're funneling money into, quote unquote, opportunity zones for recovery. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, these are opportunity zones. So they're low income. Right. But then who is where is that money going? It's likely to the point earlier, not going to of color businesses. Right. It's white organizations who are coming in because they found a real estate deal. 
um, right? Low, you buy in low, you sell high later on. That's how gentrification happens. And so I think for all these organizations, we've got to ask ourselves, do you have disaggregated rate, uh, data by race and ethnicity? And then are you looking at that data as you ask yourself about what the impacts are going to be for each and every one of these policy, practice, or procedural decisions that you are making? Because that is ultimately going to tell you, are you going to positively or negatively impact those communities? And I, I think it's important to point out that this doesn't, we tend to think that the, the move has to be big, right? It has to be this huge policy you need to consider and use this racial equity lens, but you can start small. I mean, there was a really great example, I want to say in King County, where they were looking at lighting in the community. And it just came out that in the minority communities within the county, they didn't have the same knowledge or they didn't have the same awareness of the number that you would call to report uh-huh. down street mm-hmm. light. And it was uh-huh. a simple communications thing. And so you can take it a step back and go really, really small and, you know, go from there because this doesn't massive action. It doesn't have to be that. I mean, it, it can be the small, simple targeted steps that, you know, we really see great change from. Yep. I think and what so- you're also raising too is it's not even, you know, starting with a small action. It's starting with a small question. That shifts the frame. And if you're able to get to that point of just asking the question, then you push a conversation that if you keep asking, what is it? There's that book about like the five whys, like um, whether it's the five whys or the hows of how we got to this or the who of who's missing. I think if we can push folks to get to that question, then we're automatically going to start to surface. There's something wrong with the way we're doing it or the way we're doing it is not getting us to a better normal. And so pushing that is almost like the first step, I think, that's coming yeah. out. From this conversation. So in, that, yeah. in that vein, Ariel, what, what is the immediate next step for you? I mean, in terms of this work that you're doing, looking at organizations and their policies, what's the next, the next move? Yeah, so we're, we're really working to see how we can continue to support organizations because uh, you recognize that not everybody has this skill set, right? Um, these are skills also that we have to build um, because we're not taught this uh, intentionally in our, in our education, um, both like very early on and even when our kind of professional education and training, we're not taught these things. Um, and so how do we continue to prepare people with the language? Cause I think there's a, an important role for normalizing the conversation again, being able to have a conversation about race and ethnicity explicitly, right. Without getting, uh, feeling like I have to run into a closet and hide for the next three hours. Right. Um, and then I think the, the next part of that is being able to identify. And I love that, um, uh, we talked a little about this, like this root cause analysis. We've got to be able to start to teach folks how to see uh, the connections of root causes because it, for many folks, it's not of your own volition, right? We've adopted many of these systems and institutions. And so not to point the finger at you, but it's like, now let's interrupt. Now we have a responsibility to interrupt. And so where are these policies, practices, procedures um, rooted in and grounded in, and then start to, uh, again, figure out ways that we kind of chip away at each of those things and put a new system or institution in place. I always, I say this often in my in trainings that I do and work with clients. Um, you know, if we have a cup and if anyone's into pottery, they're going to get this right. If you have a cup or a bowl that you made, no matter what you pour into that cup or bowl, it's going to take that shape. So that's how I look at systemic instructional institutional right in racism right now is that no matter what programs or small shifts or changes, right, money that we throw in, 
we're always going to get what the bowl is, the that's bowl so that's been good. created. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I've never thought about it like that before. We need to not look at the different coloring of the water, right, or what the whatever we're putting into the bowl. We need to fundamentally shift the bowl. Throw that out. Let's get some clay, right, and shape something new because that will be what allows us to finally start to shift and transform the systems and institutions so that they can actually serve those most most, uh, most impacted by structural and institutional racism. Love it. Yeah. And let me just add one last thing to that. And I think this is always a conversation, right? Be like, oh, well, we're not focusing on, right, like poor white people. No, that actually will impact everybody. So that's the other piece of this. This is actually not just to create better outcomes for people of color. It's to actually create better outcomes for everybody yeah, because white supremacy might. does not serve everybody. Absolutely. Well, we are so, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking to myself how not to swear because like, <laughs> <laughs> that's normally what happens when I get expired. Um, and I think you just inspired a lot of people and challenged a lot of people to do something new and to take up their responsibility. If you're going to be at the table, then be an interruption, be a disruption that changes the conversation. If not, then you're taking up space. Absolutely. And so thank you for your time. Um, if our listeners want to connect with you, how, how can they find you? How can they reach yeah. you? Absolutely. So our website is ogracialequity.com. Um, and my email is actually uh, ariel at ogracialequity.com. Feel free to shoot me a line. Happy to talk. I'm going to shoot you a line like right after this podcast. I'm excited. Perfect. Let me know. (laughs) It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps? Okay, Aaliyah, I am so schooled. That was totally my jam. I could talk about organizational equity all day long. So what are your what were your key takeaways from the conversation? Um, so my two takeaways for this week are first and foremost that racial equity work involves self work. Ariel talked about the importance of being able to think about what it is you bring to this work and how that affects the actions you take. And I know we've said it on this episode, we've said it on other shows, sort of the power of bias. So I just want to take a minute to drive home for our listeners. Implicit bias is the way in which our brains sort of develop patterns and organize our thoughts that then impact our actions, our attitudes, and how we see the world around us. You can say all day long that you are not racist, you do not see color, you do not you know, perceive issues in certain ways, but the reality is there are things happening unconsciously that we cannot control. And part of doing this work is looking inside and really digging into what are some of those things that I bring to this work that I may not even realize I'm bringing. How do I check myself and how do I do some deep self-reflection on those issues and how they impact how I show up and the actions I take? It's important that everybody knows. It's, It's everybody. We all have that. So it's not just something white people have. It's not just something black people have. We all have that based on what we've been exposed to, what we've read, what we've watched on TV. And so it's just really important that people know we all come to the table and within that first 0.05 seconds of seeing somebody, we've already made that assessment of what we think about them. Right. And it's not a bad thing. Like you said, it just is what it is. And we have to acknowledge that. The second thing I'm really taking away from Ariel is we need to ask better questions. Like we need to be more curious in doing this work. And so... I took some questions from what he said, but then I've also been thinking of some of my own. But what I would encourage our listeners to do is part of this work, ask yourself four questions. 
first question is, in what ways do my bias, my attitudes, and my actions contribute to white supremacy culture and racial inequities? The second question is, who's at the tables that I'm at and who's missing? And how can I use my position at that table in order to change the makeup? Next, who benefits by the work I'm doing and who's burdened from the work that I'm doing? And lastly, what am I doing every single day to take action in order to address racial inequities in our communities? And I really, I mean, if folks ask nothing else, I want to hammer home the last question because I think we're at a moment where it can no longer be, I'm thinking about these issues. Or I do a post I'm, on social media. Yes, about I do it, a yeah. post. I'm reflecting. I send a text message to my friends and ask if they're okay. And now I'm done. You've got to take action. And that may start out in a way that feels really, really small, but we've got to do something. Each of us can do something to change the current state um, that we're living in and not allow us to be having the same conversation weeks from now about why are there differences in housing? Why are there differences in how police treat black and brown communities? Why are there differences in access to capital? Why are there differences in transportation? And the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. And part of it is some people I feel they have this failure to start because they're afraid they might ask the wrong question. They might um, offend somebody and you have to get started and just find, find a person that you can speak to within your organization that you feel comfortable with and say, this is what I want to do. I saw some posts recently on Facebook where people were like, Oh, I don't want to post the blackout picture. Today's blackout Tuesday for black lives matter. I don't want to post that picture because you know, I don't know what it means, or I don't want to take away from the cause. So there's also this hesitancy and fear. And I would just encourage people, reach out to us. You know, we're not the, the say in all things race equity, but we're a resource for people. The other thing that is really important that we need to talk about as a culture is what we mean when we say white supremacy. And I feel that people automatically tune that out because they think of the KKK and the people in robes marching down the street and burning the crosses. And yes, a lot of the policies, procedures, and practices that we see every day is rooted in that KKK, you know, in the robes. But that's not what it looks like right now. These are historical policies. These are historical programs that are rooted in the fact that black and brown people were never supposed to advance in these systems. And so when we say white supremacy culture, we say white supremacist actions, just know that it doesn't mean, it doesn't have to be overt. It doesn't have to be in your face racism, but it's there. And it was based on a system that advanced white people, it advanced their economic interests and disadvantaged black and brown people. Right. And I think too, you know, we're at a point now where I love that you offered us up as resources because I love having these conversations with people and I want to put myself out there to talk to anyone who has questions or may not know how to engage um, in this space. Like you said, we don't have all the answers, but we can be an ear and we can lend ourselves. I also think that there's so many resources out there. Like I would encourage folks to do some of your own research and we can, you know, put this on the website or in show notes, but there are so many books. I'm thinking the color of law stamp from the beginning, how to be an anti-racist. There's a lot of ways that you can step out and begin to educate yourself so that I don't know no longer becomes an excuse. I would hope that I don't know is your call to action to go figure it out. 
we have to come together. We have to listen to each other. I'm learning and how to listen to some of my friends that have different viewpoints and different ways of looking at the world. And it's hard, right? They might mention a podcast or somebody they listen to and you're like, oh my gosh, that's, I don't know if I can listen to that. But we have to start somewhere. If we're expecting the other group to meet us in the middle, we have to be willing to do the work as well. But the other thing that I really want to highlight is what Ariel talked about, his analogy of the bowl and the water. And coming together, we can change the bowl. We can change what this really looks like because our efforts and our actions will always just fit the mold of whatever the, you know, whatever the commonplace, whatever the structure and status quo is. And I'm, I'm so thankful. I will use that and I'm going to steal it for forever. So shout out to Ariel for that. But it's important. Let's, you know, let's come together. Let's address the bull. And when we talk about action and what's next, we have to have the conversation. That's a really good start. That's the foundation. But there has to be the other components of action and taking action and implementing, really using real data and, and figures that we can hold ourselves accountable to, and then always refining, right? We talk yep. about monitoring and evaluation, especially in the public health space all the time. Are we doing what we set out to do? If not, why? Are the right people at the table? Did we really get the right results? Because people weren't there. Those are the actions that we need to be taking moving forward. Another thing I guess that's like appropriate right now to talk about is the current situation with George Floyd and all the companies coming online posting. What is, what is your take on that? I think it's interesting. I've noticed that many, many organizations are issuing a statement about their reactions to George Floyd's murder. And I think that the statements are powerful, but what I would encourage folks to really think about is a, how do you make the statement just the beginning? Like it's gotta be, you know, if we are committing and we are putting this out, we need to be talking about what are we as an organization committed to doing to institutionalizing equity in our work, as Ariel talked about. What are the actions we are going to take to change this? Because as we've talked about, it's not just about George Floyd. It is about systemic and historical inequities in this country and really getting at the root of those systems. It's about him. It's about Trayvon Martin. It's about Amir Rice, Breonna Taylor. And I think we could sit here and name oh, dozens and dozens of yeah. people. And so I think, you know, moving beyond the statement, moving beyond the names, how are we going to honor those names by having your organization do something impactful? And something I've noticed is a lot of the organizations when they do post, or I mean, I've had a ton of emails from different companies that I purchased things from or been affiliated with. And they all say, we normally don't get political. And this is not politics. At the end of the day, this is addressing racism and the racist policies and practices that put us here to begin with. And so it's not political. It's doing what's right. It's looking at black men in particular and saying they are at a disadvantage with policing and with community policing based on that bias we talked about and based on pure racism and fear. And so, like you said, I think it's important that we say this is a starting point. This is good. We acknowledge you. But there has to be deeper conversations in your within your organization and take the politics off the table. Like, just do it because it's the right thing to do. Right. And so what we're saying about just taking a step and taking any action, your organization may not be on the front lines of addressing some of these bigger policy issues we've talked about. But every organization has policies and structures and systems that affect how they work and how they operate. And just starting there is something. It is a step that affects all of your employees, affects 
how your company and organization shows up in this world and the impact you're doing, it affects and answers that very question we talked about earlier of who benefits and who's burden. And so taking a look internally is going to allow you to do your best externally. That's changing the bull right there. That's changing the bull. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. We know that this is a time where people are really trying to learn more about how they can have these conversations around race with their families, with their friends, within their companies or their jobs. And so please check out our website for more information at checkboxoutreach.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach, and you can listen to our podcast on iTunes and Spotify.